0: tonight we're going to explore the contemplation of mind in the third foundation of mindfulness which like gill i prefer to use the term uh, the the uh, the means for establishment of awareness or some equivalent in that regard sometimes i think of it as the the means for establishing knowing that there is this capacity of mind to know to know our experience, and to know it wisely, and to know it compassionately, and to know our mind itself wisely and compassionately. And what we're learning in the Satipatthana Sutta are the means for knowing in this way. And this kind of compassionate, wise knowing is what leads to liberation. It's not an achievement. It's not like that. It's, this is something beyond what the ego would ever achieve. It is a kind of surrender through the knowing, such that realization occurs within. The two suttas that have been most important to me in my own Dharma life of these decades is that of the Four Noble Truths and the Satipatthana Sutta. And as you have heard night after night, the final step in the Satipatthana Sutta is the cultivation and exploration of the Four Noble Truths. So these two suttas, without my understanding when they first became so important to me, really blend together. Like one is contained in the other and one leads to the, the means to establish that which it contains. So this, the Satipatthana is the means for the realization of the Four Noble Truths. It's, it, it isn't the Four Noble Truths itself, but it, it, it allows the realization of it. It's this whole process that we learn. It's a funny little juncture there at that very last step in that way, as you'll, I'm sure, hear more about in that way. So I have personally really enjoyed hearing my colleagues talk about the Satipatthana Sutta in these last evenings together. And so I was thinking about how many times I have heard a Dharma talk on the Satipatthana Sutta. I I turned to studying, to practicing Vipassana in 1983. So I've got 30 years of practice And I was guesstimating that I must have heard 15 to 20 uh, 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 talks a year on the Satipatthana Sutta. There was a period of time when it sort of disappeared. It wasn't very in to give talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. And then it came back again. These things cycle through. So I must have heard somewhere between 450 and 600 talks on the Satipatthana Sutta and probably have given, I don't know, thirty or forty? I don't really know. And I'm not talking about our references of instruction sits and making reference. I'm talking about actual talks. It would be a lot. And you know, it's just as interesting now as it was at the beginning. And I'm still learning still learning. It's, it, there's always something to learn. So as you're sitting out there and you hear uh, Heather or Gil or John make some reference and you go, I don't understand what that is. I should be able to understand that. Say that after hearing it 500 times. <laughs> it's um, uh, the, the Dharma is a very... Uh, uh, it requires a kind of surrender surrender of what we ought, what we should. So there's no shoulds in the Dharma. No shoulds. Given the complexity of mind, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight, we certainly want to continue this theme of keeping things simple. But, as we saw last night, and uh, Gil uh, speaking about Vedana, It is simple, but it's also subtle. And the same is true with mind. So uh, there is this uh, healthy tension between the necessary uh, contact, the necessary perception to establish mindfulness of body, mindfulness of vedna, mindfulness of mind, and so forth. And then this deep penetration and the sutta itself, as you will see a little later, uh, uh, captures that. Because it gives all of this detailed instruction, and then at the end it talks about the, the bare minimum to establish mindfulness of the body, or, or whichever one it is. And you go, what? I've just gone through all of these different exercises, all these different instructions, and all that was just the bare minimum? And, and that tension is part of the paradox of how we we come to direct experience. Because what we're all practicing here in this, this uh, month or two months together is the knowing through direct experience. So the satipatthana is the means for knowing through direct experience. It's not the coconut. It's the heart. It's the belly. It's this intuitive knowing. It's the felt sense of knowing that we are cultivating. When we uh, hear uh, these teachings, we can um, feel as though they're more than we can understand or oh, we've got to go read a lot of books or there's all sorts of reactive mind states that can come up as uh, On hearing these teachings, but one teacher that I was reading not long ago uh, made this very good point. He says that if you look out at the path that we're on, boy, it looks long and it looks arduous in places and it looks very complex, and whoa, that's a lot to contemplate. But, this teacher said, if we just look down at this very step on the path, It's neither long nor short. It's not in time in that way. It's in the nowness of this moment. And therefore we get freed from this trying to grasp the wholeness. When we try to grasp the wholeness of an understanding, we pop up into conceptual thinking. We lose the direct experience. We often lose our heart's connection it becomes something the mind's going to possess. And that, as I've been saying, is not the path. There's not a possession, there's a dispossession. There's a surrendering, a giving up, a giving away as we walk through this. When we turn to this very moment, then we learn what we can learn in this moment, whatever aspect, whatever feeling, whatever intuition that arises in relation to the uh, Satipatthana, that's what we receive. And it's enough. It's the just nowness that uh, Gil was introducing last night the nowness of this moment and just now, two separate uh, uh, value perspectives combined. Now is the here, the immediacy of the Dhamma. It's always here and now. It's always immediate. And it's just here and now. We don't need more. Just this. Just this. Just now relates to the here-ness that Gil was referring to last night and this morning. and what's And it points to what's true now. So in this moment, just now, what's true just now? what's arising in our minds just now. That's enough. That's enough. We don't have to fully comprehend it. We don't have to be able to analyze it in in relation to the 16 categories of of mind that we're going to be hearing about in a moment. Oh, this is what's in the mind now. Just this. As my teacher, the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho uh, teaches, this moment is like this. This mind moment is like this. The mind complaining about the hurting knee is like this. The mind being excited about what it's learning is like this. We don't have to dissect it. We just receive it and know that we're receiving it. We know that this is the experience. And as we develop Dharma perspective, we, when we receive it, we receive it through the lens of dharma and more and more comes to us, is revealed to us. We don't go out and grab. When uh, Heather started us on the exploration of the Satipatthana Sutta some evenings ago, she gave us an overview of the whole sutta and she emphasized that relationship between the third and fourth, I'm going to use this word foundation just for ease, the, 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 that relationship between the third and the fourth foundation. And then John, uh, the, the following evening, uh, again took us through the entire Satipatthana and he emphasized the body, this mindfulness of the body. And then Gill, last evening, again took us through a whole overview, and he emphasized Vedana, the feeling tone, and the importance of the feeling tone, and how it shapes the attitude of mind, and indeed it does. It is, it is uh, understanding the relationship between Vedana and these mind states that is the uh, most uh, immediate access we have to freedom in that way, because it is so obvious that if we want something really badly it makes our mind tight, it fills our mind with lust. If we don't want something, it fills our mind with discontent or anger, and it's so easy to tell. Once we have established the skill set, once we've trained our mind, trained our nervous system so that we can see that, we train our mind for observation we train our nervous system because the nervous system has to build up a certain tolerance to be able to stay present for mindfulness because of many historical reasons in each of our lives we we have we have conditioned nervous systems that will move away from certain kinds of experience that conditioning in at in its origin may have been very helpful to us. But now it's in our way. We we don't trust ourselves enough, we don't have the confidence to just stay present for the experience so we don't go through the learning that's necessary. And before we ever get to the mind, contemplating the mind, we get to retrain our nervous system, we get to practice focusing attention through the mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of Vedna, this arising of pleasant and unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So I I too will be offering a kind of overview this evening. And when we hear this overview of the whole sutta, one evening after another, there's much to be gained from that. First of all, there's a kind of of... Value of repetition it gets familiar to us, the wording the 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 order of it we just starts to settle in, it sinks in, it starts to become our own because we've been in the neighborhood of it so much, so it's very useful to hear it repeatedly, and then there are certain highlights that each of us choose to make that are somewhat different, and so therefore you get you get more of the of the detail, more of the subtlety through one voice and another. And then, of course, each of us have somewhat different views that comes out or ways of looking at it or describing it or how we work with it. And for something that I will say will work for one person but not work for another. Something that that Gil said will work for one person and not another. This is the advantage of team teaching is that you get a lot of different perspectives and you get to pick and choose what works for you, what resonates with you. It's not a consideration of, oh, well, that works for me or not. It's kind of a, again, this direct knowing, oh, yeah, that, that analogy doesn't work for me. If I, I get confused if I think that way. Oh, this is really soothing to me. I really want to embrace this. So very fortunate in that way. As we move towards this exploration of the mind, I encourage you to stay in your body. We've not said this in one of these evenings yet. And in fact, the best way to listen to a Dharma talk is to listen to it in embodied form. That You have the uh, good fortune of not listening to this on the web as a web talk. So you're, you're seeing a body give the talk. You can feel my own embodiment in so much as it's there. And let that remind you of your invitation to stay embodied. When we stay embodied, we are much more likely to get the intuition. Uh, I, and in the other hat I wear, I work with leaders. And one of the things that leaders will say to me is, how do you get more intuition? Most leaders view themselves as pretty darn smart but they're all interested in more of the feel for things, more of the intuition, more of this kind of seeing around the corner. And what I say to them is what I've just said to you. When we stay embodied, we're more likely to have this intuition arise, this resonance, this direct knowing. Likewise, I encourage you to notice the pleasantness or unpleasantness in your mind in this moment. You can notice the unpleasantness in the body, which is more this the the flesh, the kind of a vedana that Gil was pointing out last night. There's a kind of we could call that external in a certain way, the external unpleasantness of the body, and then the internal pleasant or unpleasantness of the mind. So just being aware of oh this is this room right now here I'm sitting with my my. Uh, my Sangha members that I've been with either these days or these weeks. That's a nice feeling. It's a nice feeling. And let that feeling in. The pleasantness of that feeling is a wholesome pleasantness. We don't have to be afraid of of the pleasantness. Or you're sitting there and suddenly you're feeling sleepy. And I shouldn't be sleepy, I should be listening to the Dhamma talk. And that thought is unpleasant because you're judging yourself. Okay, there's an unpleasant feeling around this. It's just unpleasant. So, being with the unpleasant. Thus, even as we're hearing the Dhamma, we're conditioning ourselves to more deeply hear the Dhamma. So it's a virtuous cycle that is going on as, as we're sitting and, and listening. At the beginning of the Satipatthana, it says that this is the direct path for purification of beings. Direct path for the purification of beings. This is the first benefit that the Sutta promises, that it's going to tell us the direct path for the purification of beings. We're all beings, so this means it's It's a direct path for our purification. I bring this up because at times it's difficult as we practice. One of the reasons it's difficult is because there is a purification that's occurring. When we include in our attitude this, oh, yes, I'm here willing to let whatever purification comes to me arise and pass on its own, taking the time it takes, then it can uh, sort of brighten our attitude, make our attitude more tolerant, more patient, because we've chosen, we value purification. Purification from what? From greed, hatred, and delusion. So yes, we're happy to have that as part of this. We've chosen this path and this path involves purification. The mind is what's getting purified. So these mind states that we will be examining, they are being purified in their own time and in their own way. We are not in charge. We are being available. So that's the first of the promise of of the sutta. The second is that this is the, that this is the path for the means for surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. You can hear that in a number of different ways, but for me, uh, at least at this time, I, I'm just aware of the, the kind of, uh, of difficulty of life, of the, of the losses that occur in life, the pain, the cruelty we do to one another, the the nature of of the human interaction. And as I was uh, reflecting this afternoon on the talk, that's what I wanted to bring out. That this is surmounting sorrow and lamentation. We can get defeated by conditions in our own lives or conditions in our community or conditions in the world. The Environment itself and the, all the challenges to our environment can drown us in sorrow and lamentation, or we can get we can get lost here on retreat in a memory, or we can have we can feel as though you know if we had just started practicing earlier, if this if that and there's this whole range of sorrow and lamentation that arises. So surmounting that, why just through presence? again there's not a doing there's a there's a knowing and being that surmounts likewise there is the the promise of the disappearance of of dukkha and discontent not that the dukkha that is the karmic dukkha of having a body disappears but the 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 uh, grasping mind that causes us to get in, involved in, entangled in the dukkha we we cease to be entangled at the very end of this path not immediately as a whole but in any given moment as you've experienced many times since you've been here you disentangle from your dukkha at this moment it's okay it's really okay there is contentment in the mind in this moment in this moment we there is there is not The the, the predominance of experience is neither dukkha nor discontent. Important that we notice this along the way. It builds confidence in our practice. It creates a sense of well-being that gives energy to practice. But we often miss those moments because we only remember the moments that we didn't think the practice was going well. So well worth remembering that. And likewise, the satipatthana is the, is the means for uh, acquiring the true method. The true method for what? I would say the true method for the realization of the Four Noble Truths. And then for the realization of nibbana. What, what is the end of, of the, all the realizations of the Four Noble Truths? Is this occurrence, this unfolding of nibbana and however you understand that. So these are the goals. It is the knowing of the Satipatthana that leads to the insight of these goals. We are cultivating the knowing. We cannot say, well, I'm going to go in the hall for an extra thirty minutes and practice having a bunch of insights. You know? We would all choose that if we could, but we can't really practice insights. They arise when the conditions are uh, ripe for them to arise. They sort of fall like fruit from a tree. What we practice is creating favorable conditions for insight to arise. We create the most propitious conditions for insights to arise. And that's very Fortunate that we have these teachings that have been handed to us that allows us to know how to do that. And the, the uh, primary gift of these teachings would be those of the Satipatthana Sutta, to include uh, the Four Noble Truths, most certainly. So, then, still at the beginning of this, of, 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 of this sutta, before we've ever gotten to any of the particular suttas, we're still at the beginning here. It, 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 the Sutta says that there are four mental qualities that are to be, in my words, cultivated for the ripening of this, the, the 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 deepening, the growth of the satipatthana realizations, and those are diligence that that the mind learns to be diligent. That's the first one. That the mind develops a kind of clear knowing that it's got it's got this mental quality of clearly knowing and that it has mindfulness and then that it is free from desire and discontent i was uh, years before i ever read any dharma books i was very leery of my uh, tendency to conceptualize so i wanted to stick with experience i didn't want a lot of uh, uh, of extra mental activity. I was quite content with Dharma talks. But when I actually sat down and read the sutta, I had a moment around this. So, okay, we're supposed to to be mindful in order to learn how to be mindful? What? How does that work? But then when I thought about it, when you're learning to play the piano, you may not be playing the piano very well, but you're, you're, you're touching the keys, you're pressing the pedals, maybe you're reading music, you're working with rhythm, and so you are, you are playing the piano even though you can't play the piano. It's true, isn't it? In the same way, we may not be so terrific at times in our mindfulness, but we're being mindful as best we're able. So it's not a contradiction. It is that we use, as one of these mental qualities, the mindfulness we have available. And since, as you will hear more later, this is a developmental process, then we are developing all of these capacities as we go. The uh, The more we have penetrated the Satipatthana, the more diligent we will be we will have more a sense of how to balance our practice. Diligence isn't efforting alone. It's a balanced effort. So uh, we've said repeatedly here, relax the mind, relaxed attention. It's relaxed attention that's a balanced attention. Yes, there's effort, but it's relaxed. There's no hurry. We can't control it anyway. Be like the rain coming down. Just here, receiving the rain, the sound of the rain, just receiving the Satipatthana experience. So this diligence is is uh, this balanced effort. The clear knowing, as, as Sampajana in Pali, um, uh, various ways these words could maybe be translated differently about Sati and Sampajana in my view and uh, not all of us would agree about these various translations, I don't think. But this clearly, known is being able to see our experience and see what if uh, if, if if there's some response needed, uh, but see it as a, as a moment in the Dharma and see it as practice. So we're just we're just seeing it all as practice. We're not getting caught in the soap opera of the experience. So we're sitting there. And this particular day, we're really opening to experiences of the mind. And here comes this memory of when you really weren't treated fairly. And this wave of anger comes up. Firing, you know, just flaming through the body. Okay. Sampajana would know that as a moment of Dhamma. Without this clear knowing... We go. Yeah, I need to write this person a letter. I'm going to go call them right now. Or we, or we get lost in a lot of hatred thoughts, because we didn't see it as a moment of, of dharma. We weren't using the dharma lens. So we're cultivating this dharma lens, and likewise with the mindfulness, we are we are staying with this experience so that we can receive it as best we're able. And then the mind free from desire and discontent is a mind that is concentrated sufficiently, at least, so that the hindrances are not controlling us. So we're moving towards having a mind that has some protection from the five hindrances. There is much uh, difference as to how far the mind has to be protected from the five hindrances and various teachings through the various years. a lot of people taking strong views about that, but for sure that we're 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 wanting to have some degree of being able to attend to what's present and not just get lost like in that anger example i just gave if 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 we're lost in our aversion that's the hindrance where anger fits in then then we we can't explore we can't be with we lose the dharma perspective and we've taken birth in that memory then that's what we make as our object of meditation. Taking birth in in a memory is like this. So there's always something to work with, but we don't always remember to work with it. When we start to practice the Satipatthana, the attitude is one of good enough. Good enough. So we start where we are. You're sitting down, you come into a particular sit, and in this sit you're sleepy. So, Practicing patana when you're sleepy is like this. Or you're restless. Practicing patana when you're restless is like this. There's nothing, uh, there, there's no condition where we can't start from. However, starting from someplace we're not is a little suspect. So you're, you're, you're going to have, you really want to have a concentrated mind. So you sit down and your mind's running around like crazy. But you're going you're going to start from having a concentrated mind. Good luck with that. We start where we are. Likewise, when we get lost, we just start over. We've widely taught the starting over, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful principle. So I've, I've written about numerous times uh, Sharon Salzberg's contribution to my Dharma understanding around this starting over. But this starting where we are is the other part of that. And maybe that we haven't emphasized as much because we will, we will suddenly quit on ourselves or agitate the mind. The mind becomes one of these agitated states of mind that we're going to look at in a moment. Out of our not- being willing to start where we are, it's we don't think it's good enough. We we are caught in the shoulds. No, I should I should be awake. I should be more concentrated. I should be more precise in what I'm seeing. That's delusion. That's delusion. No, we start where we are, and then uh, uh, we we turn to the immediacy of the experience, just as it is. The immediacy of the experience is rich no matter what the experience is because it's immediately here when the mind is able to really get to stay with it the mind becomes content around any experience this is hard to believe and this is one of these e. E. moments when the Buddha would say come see for yourself because it seems so impossible that you know if our back is killing us the mind could be content. But this is part of what Gil was pointing to last night in Vedna. The mind is capable of being content when it's it's resting in an object. It's just the nature of mind. uh, I could give you my own view as to why that's true, but that's not germane to um, what we're exploring tonight. The mind will be content if we just rest in the experience. So now, let's look at this in terms of starting with the body. Why did the Buddha start with the body or why does the sutta start with the body? Why not start with the mind? Why not start with Vedana? Why not start with the Dhammas? Why start with the body? Why would you start with the body if you were going to choose this? Let's suppose that all the teachings got lost and you were the only person that now retained it. And everybody was saying, teach us the Dhamma. And you could say, well, you know, I always thought this should be like the third noble truth should really be the fourth noble truth in <laughs> temptation. So, but, so why start with the body? I would suggest that in part it's because it is so accessible to noticing. It, we, can, we can find our body... And we can find more specificity of experience in the body more easily than we can with these these various mind states, these, these various conditions of mind that arise. They can be very confusing and clouded and one coming after another really fast and not so easy. So we start with the body for that reason, maybe. And then we also uh, have the... Uh, a sense of self that's in the body, that when we start to look at the body through the satipatthana, it quickly starts to say, well, no, this is not a permanent self. This body's changed in all these ways. It's it's made up of all these different components. And so already the nervous system and the mind, the ego mind, gets an experience of letting loose, of its grasping to solidity in a rather safe way because the body doesn't disappear. You don't think, oh, my body's gonna disappear when you see the fire element and the earth element and how they're all fit together. So we're already preparing for the more subtle, more um, uh, refined uh, realizations that are part of this, through this kind of, of of awareness. And then, um, uh, it also, when we start with the body, we learn how to be present for our experience. It is more difficult to be present for mind states. We tend to believe them more, we tend to get caught up in the soap opera of them more, and they, um, uh, 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 the arm's length feeling can get um, get lost. We really get close in they're, they're very, our, our mind states really seduce us, much more so than the body. The mind states relating to the body can be very seductive, but the body, when we're just seeing the body as the body, it is it is not as seductive in that way. At least this is my suggestion of this. So in that sense, the body becomes a kind of petri dish for us to see Vedana. Where are we first going to learn to distinguish pleasant and unpleasant and neither pleasant nor unpleasant it 's a little foreign to the regular kind of thinking, so what 's a safe place what 's an easily accessible place it 's the body, and then, uh, as that occurs, we also learn the felt sense of of these uh, uh, direct scenes, so we see the component parts of the body the the 32 parts of the body, we see the elements in the body. We we see it directly. We've learned the felt sense. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, it is all felt sense. Intuitive knowing is a felt sense, not a deductive, inductive, conceptual a kind of, of of believing something. It's not believing. It's knowing for ourselves. So it says in the Sutta, Uh, at the end of the body section, he says, mindfulness that there is a body is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So, there is a body. There is a body. I think we can all do that. So, the, uh, all of this, uh, all of these different exercises, and then, oh, there is a body. But now we've, we've, we, we, it's a qualified knowing there is a body. It's, it's, it's a very informed knowing there is a body that's necessary for mindfulness. And we're ready to go on. We go on to Vedna and we see the same experience in Vedna. And, and, and then we come to the, the, uh, the teaching of the mind itself. We are prepared. We are embodied. We understand Vedana. We know how to ground ourselves so we can open to the truth of our experience about the mind. In this, uh, in this, this third section, the, there's, uh, the way it's presented is that there are ordinary mind states and higher mind states. The ordinary mind states are the mind states of lustfulness, of anger, and of delusion, and then, of uh, one that we don't usually hear, the, of contraction and distractedness. And then there are the higher mind states, uh, which are of a great mind, an unsurpassable mind, a concentrated mind, and a liberated mind. I want to uh, suggest, for our practice purposes, that we look at them slightly differently. And I would have us look at these first three of the mind that's lustful, angry, or deluded as being, uh, re- referring back to the rooted, the roots of defilement, the roots of all unwholesome states. So there is a kind of um, ethical, sila component to these three mind states. In those three mind states uh, we could, with, if we're not careful, we can create suffering for ourselves or another because of, the, of their very nature. They, they, the, we get possessed by those three things, and we can we can create suffering. So in this in this suta, we're learning to recognize those states and see them in such a way that we will be extra cautious when they're present, even in sitting, when those mind states are present, we are extra cautious. When we're doing our yogi job, when one of those mind states are present, we're extra cautious. We're not trying to get rid of it. The Satipatthana Sutta, at least through the first three, I have a slightly different view about the fourth Satipatthana, but the first three, there is no instructions to move the mind away. There's not supposed to do anything about what we see, these these mind states. We just be mindful of them. This is the bare attention. So, with those three, we, we, we are extra cautious. When those three are not present, we also want to appreciate that. And do you? When I think about my own practice, I'd say, well, over the years I've become more likely to appreciate it. But to, first of all, recognize it and then appreciate it. But it, I, I could stand for some improvement in that area. I don't know about you, why does it matter that we recognize the the, the, non, the mind state of non-lust, non-anger, non-delusion? Because as we recognize that, it gives us confidence. It, the recognition maybe plants a second seed. The non-existence is one seed. The recognition of it plants a second seed. I'm suggesting. It's not in the text. So this, but it is in the text that there that these eight mind states are really sixteen because there's the the opposite of each. So it's important in that way to recognize it. And then ultimately, of course, the the mind of an arahant is characterized by non-greed, non-hatred, non-aversion of any kind, and non-delusion. So any taste of a moment that we recognize, oh, it's really true. My mind can have a moment of of no, uh, no roots, no 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 manifestations of the roots. In this moment, none of the roots are possessing my mind. That that is worthwhile in my in, in my view and of, of of practice. The next two, a mind when it is when it uh, when the mind is either uh, caught in a contraction or a distraction when it's distracted. I would say these are non-ethical based. Now this is my own take on this, but uh, uh, I think it's useful for practice. Because a lot of times, that's what we're sitting with, isn't it? We're not really caught in anger or, or delusion or or any kind of a lust. We're sleepy or our mind's not very bright, so our mind's contracted in some way. We've come, Maybe we're feeling defeated so our mind's contracted around that defeat, you know, this is uh, I'm, I'm tired, or whatever it is. So that, there's something about the, the body's just logi, or you know, the, something that the food didn't work right for you, or something. So there's, the, the mind's gotten all contracted. But that's all. It's just contracted. Or the mind's restless, you know, you've, you've, gotten, you've, you've gotten wired for some reason. Maybe it was a memory, maybe it was trying too hard, maybe you just woke up restless. Or you didn't sleep well last night and it's sort of gone through you. To recognize those mind states is useful. To see them as what they are, they are just simply mind states based on conditions. You're not caught in any kind of an ethical thing there. You're just having to work with difficult conditions. As you accept those conditions and you accept the wholesome part that's there in the mind, it's much more likely that in time we will fall into, we will move into a, a non-contracted mind state, a non-distracted mind state. And then, likewise, when where mind is not contracted to go, oh, in this moment it's really true I'm capable of having a non-distracted, non-contracted mind. The recognition, being mindful of these states, yeah, it's really true. In my practice, as it is right now, I have these many moments of non-contraction, non-distraction. To give yourself credit for that, to recognize it, it builds the momentum. Again, it's planting the seeds for future moments because we're having a kind of clearer seeing of the true nature of the mind-heart, actually. The um, the so-called higher mind states, which uh, uh, we could call them uh, extraordinary mind states, or enhanced mind states, empowered mind states, or we could call them the truer mind states. That this is the mind, this is the true nature of mind when it's not encumbered by any of the of the hindrances. So different ways to hold this higher mind states. I don't want to get settled into one fixed view because we can start to develop aversion to ordinary mind states and that's not helpful because we, we, we're not grasping after these higher mind states. We're available to work with them as they come, and we're, we're interested in creating conditions for them to come, but we're not grasping that whatever is is good enough, it's not even when we're employing right effort, it's not out of a, aversion, it's out of compassion and wisdom, but not aversion. We really have to watch that, even with a lot of experience to our practice so in these in these higher mind states, the first of those, first of these, is this great mind. Which um uh, uh, John mentioned the other night as well, it's a kind of spacious mind it's when the mind has uh, a kind of flexibility and and uh, fluidity that it can take in a lot, so it's the kind of of mind where uh, th- there's room for all these different experiences to arise it's not gotten pulled in to uh, some state of hindrance. There's, a, there's, a, there's some degree of the hindrances at bay, such that even if the hindrances arise, it's not just the hindrances. We recognize, there's space to recognize the hindrances. There's, a, there's this uh, capability of mind, the natural capability of mind is present. And if, if we want to notice when that's true in our practice. To a large degree, based on interviews, I think we do that, we notice that. But uh, to really understand that this is this is one of these that it's a mind state, and like all mind states, is of the nature to come and go. It arises and passes. So when we're in that spacious thing, oh, this is it! Boy, I like this. Wow! Now I've got it. Wow! This using this particular technique that that teacher said in the interview. Oh boy! Now I can do it. It'll come and go. It rises and passes not to be held on to. That's part of the teaching of the Satipatthana, that these are all conditioned phenomena. And so we're seeing the nature of even the most exhausted conditioned phenomena, that they are too of the nature to arise and pass. So it starts with this greater mind. We've sort of moved into a kind of this uh, 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 positive condition for meditation when we have this feeling. And you don't have to try to have a specific kind of um, meaning of this, but rather holding it loosely. And then the, the second of these, knowings, because it's, the, it's, it's not the spacious mind. What the, the Satipatthana doing is having us know that spacious mind is present. And likewise, with the, the second of these higher knowings, the, uh, is that we, we're in a mind state of knowing whether or not this mind state is, is surpassable. So there you are in spacious mind, and it really feels really good. It's easy to hang out there. You can be having some sort of little fireworks going on that you really like. You can get attached, you can say, I want this. So the, the question comes, part of the, 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 the skill of this third Satipatthana is say, is there more that the mind is capable of? Is this, is this surpassable? Is this mind state surpassable? Very useful, and there's a kind of art to learning how to make that inquiry that we learn by doing it. Is 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 there more possible here? Not in a greed way, but in being available. And if it is available, then inclining the mind in that direction. And so that's the question. The uh, the 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 third of these is the the mind being concentrated, is the recognizing that the mind is concentrated, knowing that a concentrated mind is like this. In the commentaries they say that uh, the, that this concentrated mind refers both to the access concentration, or what we call neighborhood concentration, and the absorptions, the jhana absorptions. Uh, I've always been tempted to put the uh, put uh, access concentration up there in that great mind space so that's if I were rewriting it that might be one I would do. So, uh, But uh, to recognize when the mind's becoming concentrated we then can work with we work with the mind in a certain way because now we've got more concentration so we we learn to work with it. And the fourth of these is a liberated mind. So these are the four higher mind states and at last being this liberated mind. A liberated mind is a mind where in this moment it is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. In the completion of the Satipatthana through the realizations of the Four Noble Truths it would represent nibbana, fully liberated. In the final completion, though, of the Four Noble Truth realizations, the spacious mind would be nothing but spacious. There would not be a non-spacious mind. There would only be spacious mind. And the, the unsurpassable mind would be unsurpassable. It could not be surpassed. And the concentrated mind would be in, in its state of this of this, of this uh, particular kind of absorption that would be a liberated mind. So it's in the final uh, thing of which we don't have to worry about right now, most of us. If you do, we're all going to be very excited for you. The, the, uh, it's much, from my view, much more useful to look at these mind states. Is my mind spacious now? Inviting in, may there be more spaciousness to my mind? To invite that in, in a long retreat like this. And then to, is the mind where you're coming, you're, you're there and you've, the hindrances are sort of at bay, to just say, so is there something else that's possible here? Is something willing to unfold a kind of a uh, a more refined mind state just inviting but not grasping not having to necessarily name what it is although with teachers we might uh in in our practice discussions we might make some suggestions and likewise if concentration is present to to make a to realize that concentration is present, and you say, do I want to continue to get more concentrated, or do I want to take this concentration and apply it to vipassana? That's the wisdom of recognizing the mind state and realizing you can cultivate either this or that. Does so this make some sense to you? And so, so why are we learning all of this? We're learning all of this to enhance our practice, particularly in seeing, the vipassana, the insight kinds of practices. In the fourth noble truth. So if we were with the concentrated mind and we if we if we go into absorptions, we're in absorptions. It's only when we come out of absorptions that we can then turn to insights. You can't be in absorption and doing the insights. That's there because the mind's too secluded to to be seeing uh, these uh, these various uh, kinds of uh, insights such as arising and passing. So the liberated mind can do either. I wanted to put the, the third uh, the patana, satipatana, in the con- this larger context in part because we don't want to make too much out of this uh, this examination of mind states. Because if we, if we make too much out of it, we abandon the body, we cease to do it as practice, and we start doing it as conceptualization. So there's this this tenderness of, 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 of treating the mind states with respect, every mind state with respect, even the ones that are not wholesome. They came about because of conditions. The suffering is inherent in that mind state, for you to punish yourself, to punish your body or to punish your mind on top of the punishment that's already there is redundant, but it's not kind. So there's, there's a, a kindness to being with all mind states, a respect, a compassion. Starting almost two years ago, I started telling people at the beginning, if we're doing an introduction series, that I teach compassionate mindfulness. And I call it compassionate mindfulness because in my experience now of working with so many yogis over so many years, to really open in the Satipatthana way, we have to have huge amounts of compassion. Compassion for the body, because the body hurts. Compassion for how how much power the pleasant and unpleasantness of of the of vedana can can pull us and tug us and redefine us we just have to have compassion for that otherwise we won't stay present for it we we won't stay and fully receive it such that we can start to co-create around it it's just too it's just too much it's too much and then when we get to the mind states we're getting ever more refined then it's even more difficult. So then when we get to the, the hindrances or we get to seeing the aggregates, it's, it's too much. It's too much for the ego to bear. But if we've conditioned the nervous system through the Satipatthana and we've really developed a Brahma-viharas, this, both the friendless aspect, this, the metta aspect, and f- from my view, the compassionate aspect, then we are able to stay present in a way that really allows our, our Vipassana practice to deepen and deepen. So it's not just a kind of relief or just getting the heart space uh, alone to be a, the value of the metta practice or all the other Vahara practices. It's It's this combo of all of these. So when I talk about treating every mind state with respect, it is that we're willing to be with every mind state, every every experience of mind that we're willing to be with. What courage, what power. It changes what that overall experience is. It, in my language, moves us from reactive mind to responsive mind. Because the, the, if it's an unwholesome state of mind, That, by definition, is a reactive mind. It's reacting to something that it wants it or it wants to get rid of it. That's a reactive mind. But a responsive mind would come right in to that mind state and say, look at the suffering in this reactive mind. That's responding to what is. That's starting where we are rather than saying, oh, I've got to get rid of 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 this wanting mind, of this aversive mind. We don't have to get rid of it. We be with it, with gentle. When Gil was talking about the holding the beeswax and uh, his child holding the beeswax and, and in between the two palms. That is what this compassionate mindfulness does. It allows us to be with. It brings dignity to our practice. It brings dignity to our experience, whatever our experience is. And remembering again that when we're willing to be with any experience, the mind becomes content, even if it's a difficult experience that contentment then will change the mind state. But there is this initialness. This is why we establish mindfulness before we try to do anything about it. the, the mind itself will do the changing. We, the Dharma does us. So in closing, um, I, 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 the most part of a poem from uh, Shodo Harada Roshi, and it's, uh, it's about this dignity, this willingness to be, with whatever arises in the, in the third Satipatthana. In this passing moment, karma ripens, and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter I choose to meet, what I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This is the dignity, this is the compassionate mindfulness that can be found in this deep acceptance of what's revealed in the third foundation. Thank you for your kind attention.